recording this podcast from Ngunnawal, Noonawal and Ngambri country and would like to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. And I'd also like to acknowledge the connection that First Nations people have had with their dogs for millennia. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking to Sho Rapley, who is a conservation biologist from Australia with a special interest in birds. She's currently doing her PhD on the reintroduction of a locally extinct bird, which is called the bush stone curlew. Her other research interests are in water bird ecology for water allocation, reintroduction of mammal species, and ecological monitoring in remote areas. Sho and I are going to be talking about how she trained her dog to find GPS trackers that have fallen off of the back of her, her study birds, which is just a really cool application for dogs, and I'm really excited to have her on the show. But first, as always, we're going to pivot into our science highlight. So this week's article is titled Diving in Nose First, the Influence of Unfamiliar Search Scale and Environmental Context on the Search Performance of Volunteer Conservation Detection Dog Handler Teams. It was published by Nick Rutter et al. in Animals in April 2021, and our summary today is from our lovely volunteer, Maddie Steffens. The basic question of this research was, do, do trained volunteer conservation detection dog teams work at an effective level when trialed in unfamiliar environmental contexts? And what they found was one area of dog behavior which many of us are familiar with is how the physical area which we train and work in can drastically change dog behavior and training outcomes. This study, published in the journal Animals in 2021, examined how scaling up unfamiliar search areas with teams of volunteer detection dogs and handlers affect the sensitivity and efficiency of the team. Part one of this experimental setup included two assessments. The first assessment sought to understand how the handler dog teams would perform in a standard 25 by 25 meter field after a single familiarization session in the novel area, and then after 12 weeks of training. The training included the teams learning how to search larger areas, eventually culminating in the final assessment of searching an unfamiliar area of 50 by 100 meters and measuring how search sensitivity and false alerts were affected. It was found that there was not a statistically significant difference in search sensitivity between the initial familiarization and post-training trial, but the false alerts rose after the training period. These results are counterintuitive and could explain and could be explained by the familiarization training and pre-trial run-throughs of the setup. The second half of the experiment focused on examining how teams which succeeded in the prior experiment would take on complex field conditions and how it would affect sensitivity and false alerts. The setting for part two of this experiment was also in a 25 by 25 meter square and a 50 by 100 meter um, area of woodland. The process began with single familiarization exercise as in part one, except in this time the teams trained on a scent board to set the baseline of behavior. As part of the baseline assessment, the dogs were asked to search the 25 by 25 meter area with a time limit of 10 minutes, then the 25 by 100 meter area with a time limit of 25 minutes. Once the dogs were familiar with the scent boards and baseline assessments were complete, the training moved to a more typical scenario with scent hides placed around the landscape and over natural objects. Once the dogs completed the seven-week training in this new context, they were assessed again. The teams were assessed in two field sizes on two non-consecutive days with non-target and distractor scents present. 
It was found that the initial move from a familiar search to an unfamiliar search caused about a 20% decrease in sensitivity. And after the seven-week training in the unfamiliar context, the teams demonstrated a 10 to 20% increase in search sensitivity and were uh, up to finding about 80% of the targets. The overall sensitivity between the two trials indicated that the teams lost a significant amount of sensitivity and efficiency between the simple and complex field conditions, and that searching in larger, novel areas has a negative effect on search team efficiency and an increased incidence of false alerts. So as always, we'll finish up with some potential limitations of the study, and the main limitation of the study related to how the samples were placed in field conditions. The experimenters placed the samples, and it is possible that the dogs were tracking the humans to the target or alerting to some residual odor from the humans, um, although I'm sure they were wearing gloves, we hope. Um, efforts were made to minimize this, such as walking in loops and having many humans present in the search area, but the second limitation includes unintentionally exposing the dog to expected densities of targets, therefore causing them to search harder or more lazily when they felt that the density did not meet their preconceived idea. So. Um, overall, just really interesting, and I, I find it um, interesting that actually the training increased false alerts incidences, but um, then in that more complex case, the, they were able to get a 10 to 20% increase in search sensitivity over a couple weeks, um, which fits with roughly what I'm aware of. Um, so anything that you want to jump in on with this one show? I know you were also at the conference where Nick presented on this, um, on this topic. Yeah, so one of the things that uh, really stuck with me is Nick made the point at the conference that there was really big individual variation in the dogs. And the conclusion he took from this is, is it actually appropriate for us to be reporting means when we're talking about efficiency? Or should we really be talking about the range that we're getting across a group of dogs? Um, and I found that really um, interesting from a scientific perspective, because usually you'd report, you know, this is the mean, and it kind of varies by this and this either side. But that's for much more homogenous groups of things. Whereas we know with our dogs, they're super varied. And so I really like that suggestion. No, I love that. And I do remember that from the recording now. Um, and that, that makes total sense to me. I know I have been in search situations where one of my dogs is, or my dogs combined potentially are finding 17 to 25 targets almost every day. And then another team working in the same area is consistently finding three to five on it um, all of the same days. And, you know, occasionally something like that is just likely to happen because of differences in search area but over the course of an entire season you could actually really see that that was likely just a difference in um dog sensitivity and um yeah so if we were reporting that as a mean you know so say the difference between five and 17 you're ending up somewhere in like the 12 range um when actually you've got one dog finding five and one dog finding 17 that's yeah that makes perfect sense to me the other really practical takeaway I took from it is making sure that we're training in field realistic scenarios. So I know for me, I have to be careful that in a training session, I might do five finds in maybe a hundred meter radius where in reality, we're looking for one. And so I have to make sure that the expectation my dog has is going to be realistic when we're out there. Mm, yes, I know that's something I've been really working on. And I think the thing I was most, um, I'm most cognizant of as I'm preparing my dogs for some upcoming fieldwork in Guatemala um, is trying to ensure that both of my dogs are both physically and mentally acclimated to the idea of working in tropical lowland jungle um, and just the incredible density of vegetation that they're going to have to be getting used to and the really high humidity, which is a physical factor. 
Um, and it's been really interesting to find myself. Um, <laughs> I've been struggling to train on it because I know I, I'm getting a little bit perfectionistic about trying to get them into these realistic scenarios and, um, you know, both in scale and kind of uh, physical complexity of the landscape. So I keep finding myself not wanting to train because it's not close enough um, to what we're moving towards right now. So with all of that said, show I'd love to start out. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about your work um, and generally, you know, what are you doing with these GPS trackers? What are what what are we asking about these birds? And what was the uh, what was the problem with the GPS trackers? Why did you need help finding them? Yeah, so I'm currently doing my PhD in a research lab where we specialise on restoring degraded ecosystems, uh, and this is mostly in grassy woodlands in Australia. So they've been heavily degraded because they've been cleared uh, for agriculture and there's been a lot of grazing pressure on them. So the natural resilience of these systems has been really reduced. So we're trying to come up with practical ways that land managers can uh implement small tweaks that make a really big difference. And so that's things like adding woody debris, uh, managing herbivore densities. But the thing we're probably best known for uh, is we do reintroduction of locally extinct species. Uh, and these species can have a huge effect on the ecosystem. Uh, so, so far at one of our sites, Mulligan's Flat, we've reintroduced eastern betongs, eastern quolls, bushstone curlews and New Holland mice. Uh, and I'm working on the bushstone curlew. Uh, so they're kind of this tall, lanky woodland bird. They kind of look like the Australian equivalent of a roadrunner, uh, except their speciality is camouflage. So when disturbed, they adopt this log position and they'll stay amazingly still until the danger passes. Um, their local Indigenous name is Mulyara or Warrabin. They come in two colours, so there's a different name for each colour. Uh, and they went extinct in the Canberra area. So Canberra is in the Australian Capital Territory, uh, which is like this little cutout of New South Wales. And they went extinct in this region in the 1970s. Uh, and that was probably due to habitat loss and also invasive species, um, particularly foxes and also to some extent cats, feral cats. Um, so we started reintroducing them here in 2014 and I started my research here in 2019. And what we really want to know is, first of all, how can we best reintroduce them, doing it um, efficiently so that we maximise survival and establishment, but also do it in a way where the cost benefit is really working in our favour. Uh, but the other big question, and this is the focus of my PhD, is how are they going outside the reserve? So the place we've reintroduced them is a wildlife sanctuary with a predator-proof fence. So there's been no foxes, cats and rabbits in there since um, around 2009, and these birds were introduced in 2014. Um, and the really big question in Australian reintroduction ecology and conservation is, well, we've got all of these areas in the continent now where we've got these predator-free zones and had great success reintroducing these susceptible animals back into them. But how do we get those benefits and those ecosystem services back out into the big bad landscape? Um, and curlews are a really great place to start understanding that because they're actually taking themselves out of the reserves. Um, being a bird, they can fly 
Uh, and when I first started fitting the tracking devices back in 2019, very quickly realized they're spending half of all days outside the safety of the reserve. So they're proving to be really resilient. And so what I want to know from my PhD is when, where, and how are they doing that? And how can we leverage this knowledge in order to get these species back beyond the fence? Gotcha. That's absolutely fascinating. And so you've got these GPS trackers on these birds. Um, What does a GPS tracker for a bird look like? I assume that it is not a big clunky collar like what I see on the grizzly bears up in Montana. So what does that actually look like? So GPS tracking for birds is really variable uh, and the limitation is primarily size. So the maximum we tend to want to go on any animal is no more than 5% of the weight of the animal, but smaller is better. So we kind of try and stick around 2-3%. Uh, so I'm really fortunate with the bushstone curlews is that they're quite a large bird. They kind of range between six and 800 grams. So the devices that I'm putting on them weigh 20 grams. So they're pretty tiny, but it's amazing what tech they can pack into 20 grams now like the field of uh, tracking science has just gone leaps and bounds in the last decade so it's got a solar panel uh, onboard battery and storage for months of data accelerometer temperature and light sensors it's actually incredible whereas some of the other birds we track uh, like Latham snipe that migrate between Japan and Australia they're a lot smaller Uh, so they get tiny tiny two gram transmitters um, that tend to have fewer sensors but still you know it's amazing the advances we're getting in our knowledge of these birds so to your question about how we're fitting them uh, that depends on the anatomy of the bird so for some really really big birds uh, like storks and swans and things they can actually use neck collars but um foreign um but the most common method for fitting uh gps's to birds is with a backpack and these are either ones that go around the wing or around the leg. And so typically around the leg ones are used for birds with long beaks that could get stuck. If the if you imagine the strap is going across the keel bone, basically on the breast, if they're preening down the front and they could get their bills stuck, so like snipes and spoonbills and things like that, we don't want that to happen to them. So we use a leg oh, harness instead. Uh-huh. But the drawback of the leg harness is the GPS sits lower in the back and it's more likely to get covered with feathers and cover the solar panel. Uh, fortunately for me, the bushstone curlews have a, a short stubby beak for running around stabbing insects and frogs on the ground Uh, and so we use a backpack harness uh, and this is where as it turns out a lot of doing science is arts and crafts because I've spent a stupid number of hours in my PhD uh, painstakingly hand sewing these teeny tiny little backpacks because I want to make sure it's comfortable on the birds for sometimes they wear them for years at a time. So we use this slippery Teflon material that's tubular, um, which means there's nothing rough sitting on the bird. It's completely smooth. Um, We've put a lot of work in to make sure that these are as ethical as we can make them. Gotcha. And I just I just had to look up a picture of these bush stone curlers. And wow, they're very charismatic. (laughs) They've got such a little such a little angry face um (laughs) very stylish eyebrows and yeah i see what you mean about um yeah they they don't look like they're at a super high risk of getting their bills stuck so um so yeah do these so these transmitters are they they're not made to fall off then but they do every so often and 
am I am I understanding right? It's not like they're glued on the way. I've got a friend who has done um, some stuff with uh, some upland game birds in the U.S. and they will kind of intentionally set them with glue so that as the chicks age, it will fall off at a given point. Um, but it's more just that these birds lose them. Am I following you correctly? Yeah, so we inbuilt a weak link into our um, harness design, uh, and that's because we want to make sure that when the device falls off, it falls off really cleanly so it can't get entangled in something. So where the harness joins on the keel, um, I stitched that with a weaker thread, so it's going to be the first thing that over time degrades and then the whole thing can just peel off. Um, so eventually these devices do come off gotcha. after a couple of years, uh, but otherwise if something happens to the bird, they are a prey item so if they get eaten by something or you know die of natural causes these devices then end up out in the field for me to go retrieve i see okay and how much do these devices cost i assume this is a pretty costly thing to replace yeah, they are pretty expensive. So the devices I use cost around $1,600 Australian, uh, and they're not even the most expensive ones. So some of the transmitters that we use on our other projects uh, cost a couple thousand dollars each, and it really depends on the tech. So my devices transmit the data to me using the mobile mm -hmm. network service, and that's because the curlews are often coming in and out of um, where there's mobile reception. But for our Stronic IBIS, that are going into, you know, far northern Queensland where there's no data, they have to transmit the information to us using GPS. And using, like, the Argos satellite network is a lot more expensive and the device is a lot more costly. So these things kind of range from $1,000 to sometimes $5,000 per piece of equipment. Gotcha. Yeah, so they're expensive. They fall off. Tell us about your dog and then... Tell us a little bit about how did this idea come about that you you decided to start trying to train her to help you find these um, these dropped uh, transmitters. Uh, I've got two dogs. Uh, they're my entire world, which I imagine a lot of people can relate to here. Uh, so the first dog I got, and my first dog ever in my life, I never had dogs growing up, um, was Coda. So she's a Kelpie cross, and she's nearly two now. Uh, and then we, not too long after that, got a second dog because, you know, one is great, two must be better, right? And so she is a one-and-a-half-year-old um, Kelpie Staffy mix called Miri. Uh, Miri means dog in a few Indigenous languages here in Australia, like Wiradjuri. Um, and Coda is... She is three-quarters Kelpie, a bit of Border Collie, and then some mutty kind of admixture. And she came um, off a farm litter, and she really wants to work. So when I first had her as a puppy, before I knew much about the detection dog scene, I was constantly coming up with kind of new ways to engage her and work with her. And we quickly got onto scent stuff, just, you know, finding treats and things, and she loved it. Um and I was really, really fortunate because one of my supervisors for my PhD is Dr. Heather McGuinness, and she is a dog person, has always had dogs, has worked with sledding dogs, doing dog sports, agility, scent work. Um, and one of her previous dogs, um, Rowan, used to do some transmitter finding for her. And so she suggested to me, she was like, you know, you could actually train Coda to do this. And I went, huh, that's pretty interesting. So we tried it out. Um, and Coda just took to it like a duck to water. Um, and she, 
she's extremely motivated. Her favorite thing in the world is a Frisbee. And you can basically ask her to do anything for a throw of the Frisbee. So um, it just became something that we were doing at home for fun to engage her. And then when I saw how much Coda loved it and how eager she was to work, I thought, oh my God, we could actually use this. This is deployable. Um, and it kind of grew from there. And that's when I started to try and find out, okay, so this is an actual industry. I'm on the periphery of it. Let's find out what's going on here. Um, and I attended the Australasian Conservation Dog Conference at the end of last year. And that was an absolute game changer for me um and now I'm pretty much obsessed and I kind of feel that if I had my time again my PhD would probably have a focus of this in it but alas I'm already halfway through that so um I just kind of sneakily making my research interests more and more dog focused <laughs> I uh, I imagine several people in the audience can relate to that sentiment as well um and how cool yeah so you you really came about this in a little bit of a, I don't want to use the word roundabout about, but I haven't thought of a better one quite yet, but okay, so we've got this kind of crazy dog. We're kind of doing some set work stuff with her just to take the edge off anyway. And then, yeah, I mean, what luck that your advisor um, had already done something like this, because I know occasionally we get, um, we get a lot of people who come to us who are really interested in using dogs or exploring dogs for whatever application. And it can be hard to get support from bosses or advisors uh in their jobs so or mm. in their in their you know masters or phd programs yeah so tell us a little bit about um you know how did you how did you go about pairing this item i assume you're using that frisbee as a reward um but you know that's this is one of the things that's really interesting to me about this gps tracker um is that is not a super smelly item so how were you how did you actually go about and pair it for her yeah, so I probably went about this a really non-conventional way, but it's kind of the beauty of the fact that I didn't know anything meant that the way I was tailoring my training is I was just trying to get inside Coda's brain. And I used to be really self-conscious and going, oh gosh, like I didn't do this like quote unquote a legitimate way. Um, and it actually wasn't until I went to the conference and spoke to people that I was comfortable going, you know what, this, this is actually legitimate, like, and maybe it's useful to try and think this way of instead of, all right, what's always been done? It's what does my dog need? So for Coda, the way we started was I just wanted her to be super interested in the devices. Um, and so we started by just doing in, an indication on the device. And so that's a drop and point with the nose and then she'd be rewarded for it and gradually making it more and more difficult. So we started out just around the house and it'd be just on the floor somewhere obvious where she could see it. And then I started polluting places she couldn't see it, hiding it like in fabric under the couch. Um, and then we started moving outside with more and more distractions. Uh, and we're at the point now where she's been doing it for over a year and she will search for probably like 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes uninterrupted out in a woodland to find this device. And originally I noticed that the reward for her was, yes, I get the Frisbee. But now she's kind of self-rewarding. She finds it and her whole body is just exuding this, I did it, I did it energy, um, <laughs> which is just beautiful oh. to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. 
Oh, I love that for her. <laughs> yeah, and I can totally imagine that. Yeah, it definitely sounds like she has got the hang of the game then. And I love that the conference was also so validating for you as because I think sometimes um, in some industries going to a conference can have the opposite effect. So I, I love that the Australasian team has been able to put together a conference that really brought you around the other way because you absolutely are, you know, you are in this industry. You're not necessarily training a dog currently um, to go and work on a bunch of other people's projects, but I don't think that's any less than. And in fact, I think there's a lot of people who are really interested in using dogs that way and not doing it the way that, you know, we're doing it, that rogue detection, that working dogs for conservation does it, where you're just a dog handler and you get hired out. That, that, that can be a really tough specific lifestyle. And for a lot of people working long-term on a singular project with their dogs would actually be more ideal. So I love that we're getting to, to highlight that sort of project. So my next question, um, and I do want to kind of circle back to that sentiment in a moment, but first I want to, I want to dial in a little bit more on this search. So when you were, when, so we met because you joined Patreon. Um, and when we were in the call, you mentioned that you actually were able to, because what you're looking for is a GPS, you have a pretty well-defined search area. So you, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what is the data that you have um, before you go out and start your search and how does that um, affect your search strategy with Miss Coda? Yeah. So what happens is the GPS device comes off the bird for whatever reason and it's still pinging me saying I'm out here in the field unless of course it runs out of battery if it's rolled over not getting any sun but typically we'll at least get the first couple days of it's there and these devices are amazing. They take a point every single minute. And so if the transmit has been stationary for a day, I've got something like 8,000 points. So I can kind of figure out with some degree of accuracy where-ish it is. Um, but with GPSs, there's always some error. And so typically it means that I know where the device is in somewhere between like a 50, 100 meter radius from a point, which in retrospect is like the perfect kind of search area to train a dog because it's this known quantity. Um, and so when I'm going out with Coda, we kind of, I've got an idea of what it is and I might sometimes guide her towards where I think it is, but I give her a bit of free reign to head out through that search area and get a sense of things. Um, and what's super interesting is she's using other clues in the landscape as well, which aren't things I've necessarily trained her on, but she might take interest in the smell of the curlew feathers on the ground, which she smells on my clothing all the time when I come home from field work. So they're clearly interesting to her. Um, and with the GPS devices themselves, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned this earlier, and so I can circle back to it. The scent plume is really little. So maybe on a particularly warm day with a bit of a breeze, she might be searching and then I've seen her whip her head back towards it from maybe four metres away, but she's not going to get it from a distance, like something stinkier. Um, and so that's when it's really important for me to make sure we're searching kind of methodically. And so we're going around this 50-ish metre search area and checking under likely things. And so I'm drawing quite heavily on the ecology of the bird and also the predators to go, well, maybe a carcass is stashed in a log. Let's sniff along this log and put your nose in here and there, or maybe it's under this tussock grass. And so we're just working together and Coda's checking some parts of the landscape that are interesting to her. And I'm asking her to check parts of the landscape that are interesting to me. Um, and yeah, that's how we narrow it down and find the devices. 
Wow. Yeah, that's a that's I mean, definitely a huge advantage to have something that you do, you know, within reason, have a pretty good idea of what your search area is. Although, yeah, I mean, with a scent plume like that, you know, four meters on a good day is definitely you do have to be really, really methodical. So are you do you tend to search on leash and just kind of in do you grid out the search? Do you spiral? Do you walk transects? What is kind of your uh, your go to strategy or does it vary a little bit based on the topography and vegetation? Yeah, so it can vary on vegetation. I'm quite safety conscious. And in the places where I'm working, there are snakes. Being Australia, we've got brown snakes around. And so I always work coda on a long leash. And that's also because I'm working in a wildlife sanctuary where there are threatened fauna that are extinct on continental Australia, right? So uh, it's just an agreement I've got between me and the rangers that she's on a leash. Um, I've got no concerns that she would take any of the other animals. She's never taken anything and doesn't have interest in that. She'd probably just go, oh, look, there's something cool over here, mum, have a look. But, yeah, I still work on the long line mostly for safety. Um, I have a handheld GPS and I'll have a cluster of the last points of the GPS on there um, and in my head we're kind of spiralling this radius where we start out and kind of circle in towards where that point is. Um, but I'm not strictly doing anything. I really follow Coda's lead and her nose when we're out there. Uh, but if we've searched an area quite thoroughly and we're not finding anywhere, that's probably when I'll take stock. I'll have a look at the GPS points and triangulate down and go, okay, let's move here and try again in a different spot. Yeah, that makes sense. And certainly I think generally when I'm working on something where I know I need to be working in such kind of tight spacing and we're working with something with such a small odor plume on leash makes more sense anyway. And especially when you're going to be in and out of nature preserve so much. Um, and I don't want to let her get too far ahead of me because, you know, eight meters is pretty good where I can see what her nose is doing. Uh, and also because I don't want to be too far away in case she does find a find. So then I can come up, check it and reward her really fast. So keeping her within that kind of area is really useful for that. Yeah, definitely. Did you have any struggles as you went along through your training or um, or into that uh, as, as we hinted at in our science highlight, kind of transitioning from training into the field? Or was that something that went pretty smoothly for you all the whole way through? So <laughs> the journey has been really difficult for me. It's been a bit of a roller coaster. Um, and part of that is because I've never had dogs before. Um, and in some ways that's really great because I don't have a whole lot of received wisdom that's ingrained. Um, but it also means that I don't have, especially when I started, I really struggled with trying to set up that chain of communication between me and the dog. It didn't come naturally to me. And that's partially because um, both my little brother and my mother have a fear of dogs and so growing up if we were walking around and we saw a dog like 100 meters away my brother would climb up the nearest thing which was usually me in complete terror so I kind of had I wasn't afraid of dogs but I had this kind of the same oh respect you have for snakes yeah. where I'm like I'll see you that's okay I understand that you're an awesome creature but I'm just happy over here um and so when we got Coda, I knew that my partner wanted to get a dog. So she was actually originally his dog, but <laughs> she's kind of become mine. Don't tell him I said that, but I'm definitely the primary handler and trainer for her. I was away in the Simpson Desert um, doing some remote area data collection. We were walking with camels out in places where you otherwise can't get to. And I knew that I might come home to a dog. So while I was there, I was reading, um, it was the, uh, the puppy primer, <laughs> 
<laughs> by, by Patricia McConnell. And that was basically all I had to go off. And when I got home, I was just desperate for this dog to like me. I was like, this dog's not even going to like me. So I started off in this really difficult place and so Coda was the one that really built the confidence in me you know we we worked together and I think that set us up really well to do this detection dog because we've been a team this whole time like as much as I've been trying to guide her to find her place in the world and to feel confident and fulfilled she's also been doing that for me in our relationship so um <laughs> it's it's been a real journey uh, and the other thing that I struggled with is knowing what advice to trust and to value because there is so much information out there. And pretty much as soon as I got a dog and I was Googling stuff about my dog, my social medias were just filled with like info on dogs and how to train your dog and quickly realized that there's not everything makes sense and not all of it is coming from the science of what we know about um, animals and behaviors. And so that's why resources like this podcast um, and also the Conservation Canine Podcast with James Davis, they've been just incredible resources for me to really be grounded in stuff that's evidence-based and also is based in compassion. You know, people that are coming to this work with real empathy for the animals and for the relationship, this evolved relationship between us and our dogs. Yeah, gosh, I can definitely, um, I definitely empathize with that amount of just being totally overwhelmed with the amount of information. And I know, so I had one dog growing up, um, who died several years after I got barley. So I'd really only had the one dog. And then I worked as a dog trainer for a couple of years, but I had, had not had my own dog. And then when I got barley, I just remember feeling so overwhelmed with his level of energy and his need to work. Mm -hmm. And even though I had mm -hmm. grown up with a field line lab who absolutely would have made an incredible working dog, um, <laughs> Barley, I think maybe partially because of being a shelter dog had just more ticks and just, I was just telling the story the other day of, um, he, <laughs> a couple months into, into having him, he, at one point, his counter surfing had gotten so bad that he had pulled down a like two liter container of olive oil that I had just brought home. So it was like, <laughs> you know, $40 of olive oil or oh, something no. like that. He pulled it off the counter and drank every last drop. Like there wow. wasn't a mess to clean up. He drank it all. And I just, you know, it was like curled in a ball on the floor crying because I didn't know what to do with this dog and I didn't know how to give him the outlets he needed. And um, we still have not fixed the counter surfing other than I'm just better at preventing him from getting into stuff. But yep, um, yep. it's hard. Um, dog stuff is hard. And you're totally right. I, It's always fascinating to me. I was just trying to get into some YouTube video to send to a client and like the YouTube ads I was getting were now at this stage in my career, I know that those ads were not things I would be interested in, but you know, I'm about to send this video to my client and the training being advertised, um, on YouTube was not something I, uh, I would be comfortable with them following at all. And, uh, it's just really, really hard to wade through. Mm -hmm. I just had a couple thoughts from what you said, which is extremely validating, right? To know that other people go through the days where you just cry and going, why can't I get this right? But yeah, for me, I tell people that I've got two Kelpies and then they find out that they're my first dogs and people think that I'm insane. <laughs> like, it's not an easy place to start. And there's days where I'm definitely like, oh, why couldn't I just get an oodle? Like, but these dogs 
are like their drive to work and work with me just it's made my world so much richer and I wouldn't trade that for anything and you know my approach when it comes to science and conservation of field work is I'm best suited to conditions where it's difficult I'm such a type 2 person I love going out for weeks at a time in really challenging conditions and because you get the most out of the environment you get to really feel it on that sensory level and so I've kind of inadvertently done the same thing with my dogs mm-hmm. giving throw in the deep end um and the other thing i was going to say about information <laughs> yeah, out there absolutely. is even sources that you feel like should be trusted aren't always right so when i got coda um my partner wasn't really interested in going to puppy school or anything because his approach is and he's always had dogs he's like no nah, we'll just do it with feeling you just wing it you just go with the flow whereas i'm much more of a well i read this book and i'm reading the literature and i think we should do that and so we took it to puppy school um and like I took her for a couple weeks but I had this sinking feeling like in my heart that I knew it wasn't right for her because she was being asked to do these really stiff commands with like a stupid amount of treats and it was just like trying to strip back to obedience this dog who was already like vibrant and wanted to work with me and it just didn't sit right with me and so one of the hardest decisions I made really early on was we stopped going to puppy school and I was like I I feel like this is crazy Uh but I I know that it's not helping her and so we ended up just doing a lot more work just based on what she wanted and I'm so glad we did is because that's how we got to the scent work was going what does this dog need yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know. Well, and even thinking back, and I give a lot of credit to the first nose work trainer I took classes with, with Barley, which was very much so, I think I've said this before, but Barley and I were on the wait list to get into an agility class. And I wanted to get in with this very good agility coach in the Denver area. And her wait list was like six months long or something for beginner agility courses. So in the meantime, I was just kind of browsing around and I found a nose work class and I was like, oh, fine, this sounds boring as hell, but like, I'll do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, here we are. Um, and I did it. And I remember um, the, the two pieces of advice. And again, um, our, our instructor was really lovely. But she was very good at kind of coaxing search skills out of Shire or lower drive dogs and hadn't worked with a lot of dogs like Barley. Um, <laughs> and so first I came in and I asked, and I asked if we could use a toy. Um, and she said, absolutely. And she went home and she watched a bunch of videos on how to do that. Um, and then kind of came back and she gave me some tips based on how the narcotics handlers do it. And she was like, you really have to throw the the toy from behind him. He can't see you throw it and you have to throw it. So it hits the scent, um, and then bounces back in his face. And I tried that like three times and I was like, this is never going to work. And then we switched over to a clicker and I would just click and he would return to me for the ball. And that I was told nice. would absolutely never work and was absolutely the wrong way to do it. And that was back in like 26, 2017, I think. Um, and now I think it's much more common to do things that way. It's not as crazy. And, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't that she was giving me dangerous advice or anything. It just the way I'm not that good of a shot with a tennis ball. And then the other thing <laughs> she told me to do, um, and this again, I think is a very 
the logical place to start for most dogs is she told me to bring his favorite toy to class next week if we wanted to play with toys. And I said, actually, I think I'm going to bring his least favorite toy. And she, you know, we like went back and forth on that a little bit. And I was just like, really, trust me, if I bring a child to tennis ball, he is not going to be able to move. He will just get totally mm-hmm. stuck um, in like herding dog, crouchy, pupils dilated mode. Um, so <laughs> yep. I brought his least favorite toy. It was like a rubber, rubber Kong bone sort of thing. Um, and he worked for that beautifully. And then over time, as he got better and better at searching, yes, absolutely. Now we do use his favorite toy in the world, but, um, you know, it's just, it's just interesting. These like little things. Oh, there goes Barley, um, uh, <laughs> joining the podcast. Um, that, you know, may or may not, may or may not, like, um, okay, these things that range potentially from full-on harmful either to the dog physically or to your relationship to just things where, you know, I don't think my nose work instructor would have caused any damage to Barley or, like, his searching mm-hmm. necessarily would have even progressed more slowly. Well, it might have gone a little bit more slowly at first. Um, it just didn't yeah. quite work for us. Um, so, not to go too far down this tangent, but yeah, often going with the the lower drive thing for these high drive dogs seems to work really well. So I remember early I was given the advice of like, oh, you should always try and get a dog that's just food motivated because they'll just be easier to train. And I was like devastated at the time because I was like, all Coda wants to do is catch the Frisbee. Um, and now that I know more about oh, dogs no. in general, I'm like, actually, this is beautiful. Like, you know, I, how lucky am I that by complete accident, I've ended up with a dog that, you know, would be chosen for this kind of work. Like <laughs> she just loves it. Whereas my other dog, Miri, she is so food motivated, but to the point where I very rarely use food in her training because she's so desperate for the treat that she's really not thinking mm-hmm. like you know I'll ask her to do something and she'll just throw every trick out of the box in the desperation to get the food that she knows <laughs> I've got yeah. whereas uh-huh. if I'm working with a ball with her and she loves playing with the ball but it's not food like she'll be more methodical she'll listen and like I can tell that like she's working with that part of her brain so yeah mm-hmm. I, I'm totally on board with you here <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. And that's interesting. And I feel like I've also talked to plenty of people who I think if they want to get into the detection dog world, they come to me and they say, okay, so I've got a dog who's got great food drive and their toy drive is kind of so, so they like toys, but you know, not so not, they're not going to die for their toy. Do I have to get another dog before I can even try entering this field? And I would say, gosh, no, no. no." (laughs) Like I know plenty of people who are successful in this field with dogs that can work for food. Um, and I know some dogs that pretty happily work in this field for very little reward at all, at least anything that's delivered by the handler, because it can be really yeah. intrinsically rewarding. You know, that's that's a little bit trickier to train and a little bit trickier to channel, but it's not unheard of. And I think, you know, there's <laughs> there's so many uh, so many hard lines. And uh, you know, I think Dr. Susan Poodman calls it cultural fog. In, mm-hmm. in our world. And I think it's always worth uh, kind of questioning and just, just looking around a little bit, maybe, maybe hitting the, hit, maybe hitting the, the target with the ball precisely without your dog noticing that you've reached into your backpack is not the most important skill to practice for six months before you ever get to touch a dog again. Yeah. And I think that's what I love about this podcast is quite often I hear you guys testing those received wisdoms. And I really like that because it's such a scientific approach to go, well, we we've heard this, this is something, 
something that we quote unquote know, but have we ever actually really tested that? And it's a really big thing in my field, like in conservation and reintroduction science, especially there is a lot of received wisdom um, and anecdote is becomes the basis of a lot of the things that we understand rather than really testing Mm -hmm. stuff. And so that was one of the things that I've really, really loved about attending the conference is because it highlighted these scientific approaches to really get into the nuts and bolts of why is this working and getting under the hood of, well, we understand that this is happening, but why is that? And how can we make sure that what we're measuring is actually what's going on in the field? So yeah, it's just a beautiful industry and the people that involved are so curious and um, resilient too, to the pushback you get against this. So yeah, I just admire admire, (laughs) admire everyone so much. Oh, you're making us all, all of us collectively blush, I think. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I mean, I, I love that we are in a field that is so receptive to questioning things and exploring in so many ways. I know, I mean, there were several reasons that I decided to pursue this, um, this over, um, other working dog industries. Um, you know, the main one being I was an ecologist, um, for a for a while. And, you know, it was just the mission that spoke most to me, but I definitely had pretty serious chunks of time where I considered military or police instead, if I wanted to be a canine Mm -hmm. handler and, uh, you know, wanted to be paid, um, (laughs) uh, and those sorts of, you know, frivolities. Um, but one of the things that I knew would be really, really, really difficult for me and my personality would be to be in a much more hierarchical, this is how you do it. You are going to spend, uh, you know, six months click treating a brick before you're ever handed a leash to work with a dog and those sorts of things. And I think there's certainly value to, you know, getting your mechanics right and all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying that, but I think not having enough room to question and play around and color outside the lines would um, would have been extraordinarily difficult for me. And I'm really grateful to be in a field mm-hmm. that tolerates that much more. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. They include Puppy Set Work, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You're Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website, canineconservationist.org slash shop. The other thing I really value about this field is there's this beautiful balance between that scientific approach that is so important, but also like empathy and gut feel so I sometimes would be self-conscious about the fact that when I'm doing research because I'm such an empathetic person I do things that would be non-standard like for example I name all of my birds and I I really feel like they're friends of mine and I know them like I could tell you everything that's happened to Frodo since he was released in 2015 and name all of his kids and all that kind of stuff which some people would say you should never name animals you should use like D613, you know, be really rigid about these things. But for me, like, 
especially in reintroduction science where you're working with really small pools of animals and the variation in the individuals matter, being able to be empathetic, I think actually enhances my ability to be scientific. And the same thing happens with the dogs. So it was really validating, again, at the conference to see people approaching science with empathy and with the utmost of care for the dogs who are our colleagues and having the curiosity to go, I feel in my gut that this is right so I am actually going to follow that um and that is such a powerful thing to do to really push back on the idea that science has to be non-feeling but instead understand that you know we're humans we we can't just be robots doing science we we are animals and we are empathetic and it's okay to combine those two parts of what makes us human which is being curious and questioning and also caring Yeah, no, and I think that's one of the things, again, that really drew me to this set of, uh, this side of ecology, and I think... You know, I, I just recorded an episode with my friend Tony Preschelt that will either come out right before or right after this. But, you know, she also works in a program where they have been studying the same groups of sheep for over 40 years now. And they know they, they know who wow. the sheep's grandparents are. They all have names and, you know, <laughs> they, they know them all by sight. And there's something really and the, the whole episode we recorded with her was kind of about the sort of data that you get from these really longitudinal observational studies and actually the point of the episode with her was some of the data that dogs can't detect you know stuff that we can't get mm-hmm. from scat um but i also think that you know that empathy empathy and connection is so important and i know for me one of the things that drew me to working with detection dogs as i hinted at was that regardless of my relationship to my study species, or even if I'm working on an invasive plant removal project where you know I, I, uh, most invasive plants do not fall under my, uh, my definition of charismatic, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I still get to have that really deep empathetic connection with my dog. Um, yeah. And that was something that really, really spoke to me, especially, especially early on, but is still really important to me now. Mm, I can absolutely relate to that. (laughs) So do you have any favorite stories from the field, any particularly exciting finds that Coda made, whether it was her first one or just a particularly challenging one? Um, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about some of your work as we're wrapping up here. Yeah, so one interesting find, and the reason this is really interesting because it answered a few questions for me, we had a really thunderstormy day at home. And so we wanted to do a bit of training inside because there was some cabin fever, some crazy zoomies. And I thought, okay, let's do some set work. Let's just get the crazies out. Um, And so I had some trackers in the house and Coda found and indicated on a Game Boy handset and I didn't reward her straight away because I was just looking at her like, what? <laughs> That's a Game Boy. And she was adamant. She was pointing her nose at it going, yep, I found it. Please give me the reward. And I had to give it to her because she was right. She'd found the components that I had trained her to find. So it had all the same kind of electrical materials in the inside and the plastic used to construct it. And so that's when I it really clicked for me that, oh gosh, she's like really finding these electronics. And subsequently she could generalize a bit too. So the brand of transmitter I use um, 
for Ornatella devices, uh, but we're getting ready to deploy her to find other transmitters for the CSIRO, which is our national science agency. Um, and they're different, different brands. And so the first time I brought one home to try it out with her, I hit this device pretty easily um, and she found it and she's, she's sniffing this device and she kind of gives me a bit of side eye and then tentatively drops the butt on the ground and I'm immediately, yes, that's it. And so she was optimistic, right, that this other tracker electronic device was also the target sent. So that was super, super cool. Um, and then I guess in terms oh, of the contrast, yeah. is, I'll just tell you quickly about our first deployment <laughs> and our most recent deployment. So the very first time I took her out, in retrospect, it was probably a bit early. She was nine months old um, and one of my birds had um, been predated uh, kind of far from the reserve, so north up in this farm country. So it was on some farmer's property. And so I got in touch with them and was like, look, I want to retrieve this device. Is it okay if I bring my dog out? And they were like, sure. So I arrive with this nine-month-old puppy who's just crazy on the end of the long line, sniffing everything in sight. And the farmer kind of like raises one eyebrow to say like, okay, this dog <laughs> is going to find your scientific equipment. And I had to be like, yes, of course you will. But on the inside, I was like, I don't know. And we got out there and the spot where we were looking for the transmitter was this chest high Phalaris agricultural crop grass. And it was one of those situations where me as the human, I was never going to find it. So I was entirely relying on co-disability and I just wasn't seeing the focus from her, which is entirely fair. I took her out somewhere with smell of sheep and fox and all this interesting stuff. And so <laughs> we were there for quite a while, like half an hour, and I was trying to implement this search radius. And I, my heart was just sinking, like, oh, my gosh, like, what have I done? When just for a split second, Coda got this look of extreme focus, like this tautness in her body and her eyes. And then the moment passed and she moved on. Uh -huh. And I walked over to where that moment was. And lo and behold, this transmitter right like <laughs> at ground level hidden in the glass. And I pick it up and I was like, oh my gosh, you did it. And we threw an absolute party. And the farm was like, wow, okay, I didn't think it was going to happen, but ah, here we are. Yay! <laughs> and flash forward to just um week before last is when we did our last retrieval. Um, it's kind of just beautiful how well we've um, developed as a team. And I think a lot of that is just on me, my skill as a handler and trusting her. It, we just work like clockwork. You know, when you're just flowing. So we went to this field site and Coda immediately is on the job and she's so pleased mm. to be working. And we did this sweeping loop towards where I knew the tracker roughly was. We came into the spot with some tussock grasses, nose straight in, and she found it within a few minutes. And it was just beautiful. It was a beautiful day out. <laughs> she like strutted home from that farm. I'm oh, so chuffed. <laughs> <know> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yay. Oh my gosh. We should uh, we should just have a whole episode where we just ask everyone who is uh, on in the field with their dogs to just send us like recent wins because that like maybe that'll be our uh, our annual holiday episode or something. <laughs> yes, uh, let's do it. <laughs> because I I love these stories so much. Um, mm. Yeah. Now I'm saying it in January, um, so maybe I'll actually have time to get it together between now and December. Uh, I'll hold you <laughs> somebody to it, remind me. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so you said next up, you're heading off to help out on another project to find their GPS stuff. Are those kind of the? Is that the big thing that's next for you and Coda? I know you're also still finishing up your PhD. I imagine that is going to take up 
some amount of focus. Yeah, so it's actually good that we've got this work coming up because I'm kind of at the stage towards my end of the PhD where there's a lot of analysis and writing to do, which I I do find the analysis so interesting, but my heart's really in the field. So having these trips to look forward to and just being able to go and spend time with Coda is, yeah, that's what we live for. So we'll be doing some retrievals across um, this vast area, which is the Murray-Darling Basin, which is basically the main water flow for the eastern side of Australia and it's from Victoria through New South Wales to the ACT up into Queensland and so some of these devices are basically on the edge of the Simpson Desert some of them in far western New South Wales some of them are on the coast so we're planning um, it'll probably be a couple of loop road trips um, to pick these things up so got a bit of practice involved in car travel and um, crating in the evenings and things like that before we go Uh, but it's going to be brilliant because we're going to get to see um, a whole bunch of landscape and work in a few different field settings that I think is really going to hone our relationship Um, and for me like just going into different ecosystems I love the desert so it's going to be nice to go back out but we've just had to postpone it for a while because with the current La Nina um, uh, weather cycle, the Southern Oscillation Index, most of inland New South Wales is flooded right now and a lot of the roads are closed. So it's probably going to be next winter, which gives us this winter coming up, gives us a bit of time to gear up and get ready. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. No, and that sounds that sounds like a lot of fun and especially exciting for you guys to get to go out and get to do a bunch of these in a row. Um, I, I know I love getting to wake up and go do this stuff every single day. Um, mm-hmm. And then I get to a point, usually after the end of about a three-month deployment, where I'm really ready to go home and be like, yeah, I'm ready to go write a grant or something right now. Um, and that, that, mm-hmm. that feeling doesn't last long, but I usually do get to there at some point towards the end of a field season. Yeah, and it's good to have that motivation to actually get the desk work done because otherwise if I had to sit at my desk every day, (laughs) nothing would get done. Totally. Yeah. No, I I, I do love when I finally get to the point where I'm like, you know, I think I'm ready to sit in a chair and not be sweaty for eight hours at a time. That actually sounds really nice. Um, It's nice to be able to get to that point. Although I'm recording in El Salvador, so I am sitting in a chair, but I'm still very sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so for me, one of the places we go to fit these transmitters to water birds, that's um, one of our other research projects, um, is we go out into flooded um, wetlands where the birds are breeding. And so to catch these birds, we're setting snares and we're literally sitting on kayaks for 12 hours a day. I don't know if you've ever tried to go to the bathroom on a kayak, but it's no mean feat. So sometimes after two weeks of doing that, I get home and I'm just like, oh yeah, a couch, a toilet, like I'm living the sweet life so it's it's really that dichotomy that (laughs) really makes life interesting right oh absolutely my um the summer after my uh, last year of high school before I went off to college I worked four days a week in construction um and three days a week as a sea kayaking guide and I just remember that like every single day I would get home so seven days a week of just like hard outdoor work Oh, it was crazy. It was, I mean, the, the sea kayaking job was so fun. And honestly, construction was really fun, too. I had a great crew that I was working with, and we were doing um, restoration on historical sites in some national parks. That's um, cool. But I just remember every single day I would come home and just literally, like, lie on my back under the air conditioner and just, like, breathe. And be like, <laughs> is this adulthood? Like, I don't know about this. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So as we're wrapping up here, I feel like you and I could go on all day. So we will try to let our listeners go eventually. Did you have any questions you wanted to flip back at me about um, what's I, about anything? Go for it. Yeah, well, I've got two questions for you. Um, the first one is, I'd love to know, what is the safety command or protocol that you find you use most in the field? Um, too far. So both of my dogs, I have taught them uh, that if I yell too far, they're kind of just basically supposed to stop moving away from me um, or mm -hmm. slow down. So it's a, it's mm. a really muddy cue. Um, like, it, it, it's not super duper clear where they're supposed to drop and hit the floor or come back and hit me in the hand with their nose or anything like that. And I do use, you know, the drop in space and drop in place or recalls of those sorts of things, but really probably every five or 10 minutes, especially with my younger dog Niffler, I have to kind of call out too far to him. And again, mm -hmm. to him, that just means kind of slow down, check in with me. Um, and I will use that to kind of direct him uh, and keep him from, you know, ending up kilometers away from me. Oh, that's brilliant. I think that's my favorite question to ask handlers because it's great to get a diversity in how you work safely with your dogs. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely consider adding that onto the repertoire. Code is pretty good though. She, she does just kind of naturally check in with me and yeah, has done since she was like, you know, 10 weeks old. So <laughs> she's pretty good. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We, we love that. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, again, it's mostly for Niffler at this point, just because he, um, he likes running around at about 3000 kilometers an hour. Um, and especially and at the beginning of a search, it's, it's so just fun. off at, <laughs> oh my gosh, he's got, well, and he's got legs for days and he's only two and a half years old. So no matter how much <laughs> exercise I give him, he always has steam to blow. Yep. Relatable. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, and you said you had a second question. <laughs> yeah, and this one's intentionally vague. Um, given I'm really new to the field and uh, I just want to soak up everything you have to offer, but what would be advice you'd give to new people coming on in this field? Stick with it, um, I think, would be the most important and kind of hardest thing, I think, and we've talked about this before on this show, how hard it can be to break into this field, to find success and stability in this field. And, you know, and with your dogs, um, it's, it's, it's a challenging field. And I think, you know, Heath Smith says it really well as well, where he says, you know, don't just keep trying something that's not working. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, we don't just need to keep doing a bad plan harder. Um, but I do think, yeah, stick with it and, and try not to get too discouraged, um, with, uh, yeah, with kind of a slow start, um, whether that's with your dogs or with your finances or whatever else. Mm, that's really great advice. And I think especially in the finances, because in conservation generally, most of us are doing this because that's, you know, what what's in our heart. That's what we really care about. But it becomes easy just to give our time for free. And so the industry is accidentally really exploitative. So I really admire, um, you know, teams like yours um, who have managed to make it financially viable because you you have to and being able to subsidize your work for those really deserving causes is such a beautiful way of getting around it but making sure we can in the long run continue to deploy this expertise means that you know we've got to bring in the funds to do so so yeah sticking with that really really important 
Yeah. And honestly, I mean, I'm still not making, I don't even think I'm making 50% of my income from canine conservationists on the average month, probably on an annual basis I am because of, uh, just how much more money I make on the wind farm work than I do doing everything else. But I'm still, Mm -hmm. I'm doing website design. I'm doing freelance writing. I do do some private dog training still, though I'm really trying to get away from that. Um, And I know that's true for a lot of people in this industry who, you know, we, we don't talk about it that we a lot of us have multiple Mm -hmm. jobs, but that's still true. And it's, I don't want it to be that way, but I, and I think that actually dovetails in, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about and thinking a lot at canine conservationists is, okay, so if, if we accept that for now, this is not a full-time income for any one of us, let alone all three of us, what are some other ways that we can get creative beyond just paid field work to help yeah. give us more money? So, you know, that's where like Patreon comes in. That's, um, you know, that helps take the edge off. That's part of where our course came from. You know, we're really excited about education and outreach and we really enjoy doing those things and are passionate about them. But it was also partially us kind of looking at it and thinking, you know, mm. if we want to have, if we don't want to all have three jobs and therefore <laughs> always struggle to even have the time and the ability to rent, you know, it's like, it's this catch 22 where if we take up another job so that you can pay rent, then you don't have as much flexibility to write the grants. You don't have time to write the grants. You don't have energy and you don't necessarily Absolutely. have the flexibility to go take those field gigs. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really hard. And I think we've all been lucky enough to figure out, you know, like my freelance writing, I've got clients that are absolutely understanding and delightful. If I say, Hey, I'd love, I'd love to be writing two articles a week right now. I'm not in the field. And then when I'm in the field for these dates, um, don't count on me writing anything for you. And I'll be back at this point. Um, you know, that works really, really well for me. Um, but wouldn't work quite so well if I was working, I don't know, kind of a more typical, typical job as my, as my backup income. Hmm. And I think it's really good that we're able to talk about this stuff. And especially for people that are new to the industry, like that reality, um, because one of the hardest things has been for me to learn is to just not give away expertise for free. And of course I love volunteering on projects. Like most of my holidays are me like going to a different reserve to do like reptile traffic or something because it's so much fun, but more like if, government or another company or someone, someone that does have the money should be paying for the expertise. I can't just give it away. Like there, there has to be that investment too, like, um, agreement and protection of intellectual property, um, to make sure that what we're doing is sustainable and is in the best interests of both the researchers and the research. Yes, absolutely. Well, we've already gone a little bit over on time. And again, I could sit around and talk to you about all of this for much, much longer, but I actually, I think I need to go rescue a, um, a a surf instructor from Barley who is currently mauling him with a half meter long, log that's about as thick as my thigh um, <laughs> uh, oh my gosh I had so much fun we might have to have you back on uh we might have to have you back on after your your big road trip walkabout um picking up all of your all of your samples and let us know all your all your success stories and you know hopefully a couple fun ones as well of you know, fieldwork fails. Um, nothing dangerous, but something funny would be fine. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, so, show where can people um, 
keep up with you on the internet if they're interested in learning more other than, you know, just joining our, our, our Patreon and being able to bother you there? Yeah, well, I'm trying to be pretty chatty on Patreon now too, but um, you can find my Twitter. I'm at Showbird, and I think that'll be in the show notes. Um, I'm not too great <laughs> at keeping up to date with my socials, but you can find some really, really cute videos of my study species, bushstone curlews. I've got camera trap footage of them hatching. So first one's hatching back in this area for 50 years. So go check that out. Um, and also the link to the website for that restoration project that I'm doing my PhD with. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. We'll make sure that those all end up in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and to all of our listeners, I hope that you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. And I hope that this episode helped you maybe come up with some ideas of how, how that may look a little bit different for you. And maybe you're feeling inspired as a biologist to give it a go with your own dog um, rather than trying to figure out how to find funding for, um, you know, someone like us, although we would love to work with you. Um, and yeah, thinking a little bit outside the box, I really, really appreciate this conversation. So we'll be back in your earbuds next week with another great episode. And um, until then, goodbye. Goodbye.